Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 17? I bet you this is the first time you are purposefully turning to 2 Chronicles in a long time. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, there's no shame in using your table of contents on this one. This is in the the front of your Bible, the Old Testament, the left-hand side of your Bible. And bring your Bibles with you when you come to Grace. We're a Bible teaching church, and so whenever you come, we learn from our Bibles. And the more comfortable that you get in turning to places like 2 Chronicles, the more comfortable, more and more comfortable you'll begin to be with your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible today, no shame. You could use your phone today and bring your Bible next week. In your phone, you're going to type in 2 Chronicles. It's spelled C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-S. The number two, Chronicles chapter 17. 2 Chronicles comes right after 1 Chronicles. So now you can easily find it now that you know that, right? All right, well, as promised last week in our Easter services, today we are beginning a new series that's all about biblical parenting. We just sang a song about, um, about God being our perfect Father, and He, of course, is our model. Now, I realize that not everyone in here has kids in the home today. Uh, for many of us, the, the, the kids have already moved out of the home, but I want to tell you why this matters. Here's why this matters. There are people in our room today that want to be parents someday. They're junior hires, they're high school students, they're college age, uh, they're, college age they're, uh, they're adults who want to have kids someday. And so they're already, you're already doing the math on how you want to parent. You're already saying, oh, I don't like the way that that happened. I don't like the way that my parents did that. Oh, I, I like the way that my friend's parents did that thing, and I want to do that thing. And so already today, you are beginning to formulate ideas in your brain about how you want to parent. So we might as well allow God to formulate along with you here. Also, you are living in the home probably. And so if uh, you don't have kids yet and you're living at home with your parents, you are being parented. And so this might even give you a little bit of insight into what is happening to you when you go home this afternoon. Now, I get it that there are a lot of people here whose kids have already moved out. They're in their 20-somethings, or your kids are in their 30-somethings, or their 40-somethings, or their 50-somethings. And the good news is that you don't ever stop being a parent, that you are always a parent. It just changes over time. It's a different type of parenting but you're still their parent. And then at some point in time, you graduate. You reach parent graduation, and you become a super parent, called a grandparent, I guess. And uh, and a super parent, they can do no wrong. You cannot mess up. You just feed the kids all sorts of candy, give them a lot of money, and send them home to their parents to deal with all the repercussions of it. So, So there are parents in here and there are grandparents in here who have influence in children, their grandkids, and their own children. And we've all been parented. We've all had parents. We, whether it was good parenting or bad parenting, we are affected by the parenting that occurred to us. If we had great parenting that you compliment it and you look back upon it and you know that that made you a part of who you are today, and maybe you weren't parented as well and that still taints, affects your life today. 
And so on this topic of parenting, I figured that we would start off with a list of parenting mistakes. We can all identify with parenting mistakes. We've all made them. So here is the list of top six parenting mistakes, and this is pulled by kids, not your kids, just some kids. And so they aggregated all the, all the data of the kids' response of the parenting mistakes that their parents made, and here are the top six parenting mistakes. The first one is, if I create a big scene, my parents will always cave. Now, I'm not saying you've ever done that, but this is that kid who's like laid out in the target aisle, just screaming, the mom just throwing Kit Kats and G.I. Joes at him to stop, make him stop crying. We're talking about that kid, okay? I know you've never done that, but apparently other parents do. Number five, the mistake that kids notice about their parents they ground me, but they always forget. And the kids are just pointing out that the kids can quickly see inconsistencies in discipline. You know, they can see that. Their parents are human, and there is inconsistency in that. And the kids notice it. Number four, if I ask mom enough, I can wear her down. Okay, who wants to admit of wearing down their mom when they were a teenager? Who wants to admit to doing that? You're a bunch of liars. I know you all did that. That's what teenagers do is they wear down their mom. And kids know how to do it really well. Number three, top top six parenting mistakes. I don't have to clean up my room because I know my mom will do it. Now, I didn't have that mom, but apparently... Apparently, kids have learned if they don't do it, their parents will pick up after them. I'm not saying you've ever done this. I'm just saying some parents do this. Number two, my parents didn't have to worry about number two. Number two, my parents have no clue that I am up late at night talking to my online friends. Now, my parents had, that that was never a, like, that wasn't even a thing when I was growing up. When I was growing up, when I came in the door, you know, the, as soon as the streetlights came on, that's when I had to come home. And when the streetlights came on and I came home and the door closed behind me, my, my friends were not affecting me anymore, you know? My parents had me. But today that's not the case with uh, cell phones and the internet and uh, social media and uh, the Xbox video games. That the friends who used to be outside the walls as soon as the kids came home, now, today, those friends can reach through your locked doors and affect your kids while they're inside the home. Now, that could be a good thing or that could be a bad thing, but, but parenting does change over the years. Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about that. They had to worry about other things, but they didn't have to worry about that. So some things do change in parenting, but some things never change. Age old, number one, the number one top parenting mistake will not surprise you at all. If my dad says no, my mom will say yes. (laughs) Kids know how to pit their parents against each other so that they can always get what they want. Now, I'm not saying any of you have done any of these things, but you know, that's kind of funny. Because we can see it in other people. No doubt, you know of parents who've done all of these things, don't you? You've seen it in other people, but we don't ever want to see it in ourselves, do we? We don't ever want to notice our own mistakes. 
But we've all, we've all made parenting mistakes. Whether it was these six or another six, we've all made parenting mistakes. And so that's why the title of this series is Blank Parenting. Blank Parent. The blank isn't a cuss word, okay? <laughs> blank Parenting. We're looking at some dads, particularly of the Old Testament, who were even worse than I am. I, I, fi- I figured we're going we're gonna to make ourselves feel better in this series, okay? We just sung about God being our, the perfect father, being a good, good father, and now we're going to look at some bad examples of fathering in the Bible. So each week is going to be a different bad type of parenting that we want to avoid. So today it's blank parenting, it's naive parenting, being naive to things around us as we are parenting. It would actually be a lot harder to have a sermon series that's about good dads of the Bible because there just aren't really many there. There's a lot of bad dads in the Bible, but there just aren't a lot of good ones. As a matter of fact, pretty much every man in the Bible who was a father that we know of turns out to be a pretty terrible dad. Now, we're talking primarily Old Testament because the New Testament isn't written like that. The New Testament is, has a different purpose, it has a different angle, and has a, has a completely different writing style, and we don't see a lot of parents interacting with their children in the New Testament. And so we're looking at bad dads of the old. That would be a good title for this series, Bad Dads of the Old Testament. Okay, note to self, 20 years from now, Bad Dads of the Old Testament. So we're looking at Bad Dads of the Old Testament because that's where we get to see the interaction in the families, the dad and the wife and the, the dad and, and the kids and, and the mom and the kids and the interactions that are there. And as a matter of fact, most of them in the Bible turn out to be pretty terrible. They let their kids get away with things. They, they, they do things to their kids that if they were living like in Riverside in 2023, would get their children taken, taken away from them by CPS. I mean, bad stuff. And so this is really like a don't do it like they did it, parenting edition, okay? Don't do it like they did it. And so today, the very first person that we're following is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. We're dealing with Old Testament here. And so the problem sometimes when we're looking at the Old Testament is that we immediately disconnect from it. You immediately say, Jehoshaphat, this is not my culture. This is not my language. This is, this is not me. I, there's no way that I can identify with Jehoshaphat. And hopefully I can pull you back from that. Don't, don't, don't enter into that. If you want to call him Joe, fine. If you want to call him Josh, fine, because you know somebody named Joe. You na- know somebody named Josh, all right? So we have Jehoshaphat, or depending on how you were raised, it's Jehoshaphat. Either way, I'm fine with it. It's not immoral. I'm saying Jehoshaphat because that's what I'm used to, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is our first example today. Now, you have to know a little bit about where he lived because it's going to play an important part in the naive decision that he made. This is a Google map of modern-day Middle East, 
Google Maps solve a lot of problems, and so it's going to solve a little bit of our problem today. We have the Mediterranean Sea on the left-hand side. The little blue there in the lower middle there is the Dead Sea. Stretched right between it is Jerusalem. Okay? If you were to go kind of off the map down to the left corner, you have Egypt, you have the Nile River flowing into the Mediterranean. Uh, if you were to go off the map on the lower right-hand side, you have like the Persian Gulf. All the desert to the right on that map is uh, Middle Eastern countries like Jordan or uh, Iraq or Iran. So that's where we're looking here. And so we're going to move away from modern day. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. And you remember that God promised a land to Abraham. It's called the promised land the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. It was a part of the Fertile Crescent. And that promised land kind of stretches in between the Mediterranean Sea and and the the Dead Sea, kind of the, the strip up and down there. And it was promised to Abraham, the patriarchs. God made the promise that he would occupy the land. But interestingly, Abraham never occupied it. He just sojourned in it, set up a tent, and then moved on, set up a tent, and moved on. He never occupied it. Then the next patriarch, his son Isaac, never occupied it. It was promised to them, but they never occupied it. He, he sojourned in the land, set up his tent, managed his herds, and they moved around. And then we get to the next patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The next, the next patriarch, he doesn't, he doesn't live there either. He doesn't occupy it either. He sojourns in the land, set up his tents, follows his herds around, and for the first many generations, that land that was promised to Abraham wasn't given, they didn't occupy it. There wasn't enough of them to occupy, but eventually they did. Eventually, they occupied this land of promise in the Fertile Crescent, and it was flowing with milk and honey. It was built just for them. But unfortunately, the 12 tribes of Israel, those are the 12 sons of Jacob, they all have families and had families and had families and had families, and that created an enormous kingdom, an an enormous nation. And they moved in to the land of promise. Unfortunately, they couldn't keep their act together. And they divided. They split. And so where we find ourselves today is it's a split kingdom. We have two different kingdoms of Israel. We have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. We have the southern kingdom that is called Judah, as we get to 2 Chronicles. Now, these are still the 12 tribes of Israel. These are still the same people, but those tribes just couldn't get along together, and so they are divided. Some, Some were living in the north, and some were living in the south, and there were literally two different nations. It's kind of like When a church splits, maybe you've been a part of a church split or you've heard of churches splitting, and that's a terrible thing. Instead of Christians being able to get rid of their selfishness and find points of unity and find a way to stay together, they just can't do that, and they they split apart. And the problem is, is now you have have two churches that started with a foundation of disgruntlement, (laughs) and they grow up from disgruntlement into apparently more churches. And the, the problem is, is now they have two mortgages, you know, and now there are two pastors and two children's ministries, and it would have been so much better if they could have just figured it out and remained one church. But of course, humans are humans, and they, sometimes they're unable to do that, and so they have a divided church. Well, this is what happened in the kingdom or the nation of Israel. 
It's divided. There are two kingdoms. And so at any one time during this period of time, at any one time, there are two kings of Israel. Kind of makes it hard to study Israel history when there are two kings of Israel. (laughs) And so you're trying to figure out, okay, which one is this and which one is that? And I thought you said that one. Yeah, but that one was also that one. So two kings all at the same time. And our focus in our first uh, parenting mistake, parenting number one, is the king of the southern kingdom. His name is Jehoshaphat. He's the king of the southern kingdom. We pick up his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, beginning at verse 3. It says, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judea brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he, was, he had great riches and honor, and he took great pride in the ways of the Lord, again, and again removed the high places of the Asherim from Judah. And so Jehoshaphat is the ruler, the king of this southern kingdom, and he is the best. He is the most godly king that they have ever had or will ever had, the best king. It mentions here that he followed the way that David did it in his earlier days. You remember David in his earlier days, King David was a man after God's own heart. Later on in his later years, he crashed and burned. It was a giant crater of smoking mess later in his life. But earlier in his life, he was a man after God's own heart. And so Jehoshaphat modeled his life after the earlier days of David. He was a wonderful, godly, faithful man. Now, the question is, is how did he become a believer? How did he... How was he a a, a godly man? Now, we don't exactly use the term Christian in the Old Testament, but we can use the term an Old Testament believer. And so how did he get to be a believer in the Old Testament? Most people would assume that he did all of his sacrifices, and it was through the sacrifices that then he became a believer. But that's not the case. Throughout all of eternity, from Adam and Eve all the way until today, every single person is not saved through doing a thing. They are saved through faith in a Messiah. Now, for us today, we can look back upon when that Messiah occurred, and that was Jesus Christ, death on the cross, God in the flesh dying for us. And we have faith, we have belief that His death can apply to us and remove our sins. And so it's in that faith, then, that we are saved by Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true for Jehoshaphat on the other side of Jesus' death on the cross. He had faith in a coming Messiah. He didn't know everything about him. He didn't know his name like you know his name. But that is where faith came from, even in the Old Testament, was from faith in a Messiah, not through doing sacrifices, not through following the, the law of Moses. It was always and only through faith in the Messiah. And so he was a godly, you could call him an Old Testament Christian. We don't use that term. We just say he, he was an Old Testament believer. He was a follower of God. He was a wonderful man. And Second, Second Chronicles here tells us that not only was he a godly man, but he led the entire kingdom of Judah in those ways. So much, in fact, look at verse 10 of chapter 17. 
says, Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. He, he had such favor from God that God instilled fear in all of the people around Judah that wanted to take him out. This has always been the case. That there have always been people around Israel that wants to take him out. It's that way today. Every single nation surrounding Israel today has on their to-do list to take out Israel. It's always been that way. It was that way here in 2 Chronicles. It was that way even before they were a divided kingdom. It's always been that way. And so God had supernaturally, in some sort of way, instilled fear in all of the neighboring nations that wanted to take out Judah, the southern kingdom, that they didn't even want to get close to the borders because of their fear of the power of Judah. And so because of this, Judah experienced something that they rarely did. Judah experienced something that Israel rarely experienced. They experienced peace in the kingdom. They experienced uh, spiritual growth in their kingdom. They, they followed God's law in their kingdom. They, they had strong boundaries as a nation. Those things are rare for Israel. Spiritual growth, following the Lord's commands, strong boundaries, uh, social peace was very rare. Because what Israel typically experienced was waywardness, wandering around both spiritually, figuratively, and practically. They experienced wandering. They experienced unsecure borders. They were often being taken captive by other nations, and they had massive political upheaval in their nation typically. But right now, because of the godly man of Jehoshaphat, things are going so good. Now, it's possible that when I told you that this was going to be bad, dads of the Bible, that you're probably thinking, oh, he's going to pick a really bad dude. He's going to pick a really bad guy, you know, one who's not a believer, one who doesn't love the Lord, one who beats his kids, one who ignores his family, one who doesn't pay for the Xbox, which is pretty evil, by the way. But I thought you can pick someone like that. But notice, that's not who we're starting with. We're not starting with someone who is bad and evil and immoral and a really bad guy. We're starting with somebody who is a wonderful believer, who loves the Lord, who wants nothing but the best for his nation, but even more personally, he wants nothing but the best for his, his family. He prays for his kids and with his kids at night. He's a, he's a wonderful dad. And so today is speaking to those of us in this room who have a great Christian track record. Today, today is for those parents who, who have nothing but the best of intentions for their kids to raise their kids in a godly Christian home. It's not maybe you didn't necessarily grow up like that, um, but you are working very hard to make sure that your kids grow up in a home maybe different than yours was so that they can be launched in a much better way, a way that you wish you had been launched. Those are the parents that we're talking to today. I can identify with that. 
I, I, I want my kids to get the best launch possible. I want nothing but the best for them. I want my kids to, to grow up in a Christian home and, and see that modeled. But there are some warnings. I'm going to give you the warnings at the beginning. We're going to see how those warnings play out, and at the end we can apply them. But here are the warnings. Just because a parent is godly doesn't guarantee godly discernment on the parent's part. Just because a parent is godly, it doesn't mean that immediately there's godly discernment. It's possible for Christians, even mature Christians, to make dumb decisions. That's another way to say it. It's possible for Christians to make uh, uh, alliances that hurt them and their family. It's, It's possible for a godly parent to have an insane moment and have bad ideas instead of good ones. You know, sometimes we think that, well, just because I'm godly, that just means that I'm discerning. Just because I'm a Christian, that means every decision I make is going to be perfect. But there's a warning in that. That's not the way that it works. And Jehoshaphat finds that out. Warning number one, godliness of the parent does not mean, does not equal in an equation godly discernment on that parent's part. And number two, number two warning, godliness on the parent's part does not mean that it equals godliness on the child's part. Just because the parents are godly does not mean the math equation is going to equal the kids living a godly lifestyle. I know we want that. Even if the kids grow up in a perfect home, that's not the way that the math works. Those are the two warnings. We'll get back to them in the end. Okay, so now back to, back to our divided kingdom here. We have Jehoshaphat, who is the king of the southern kingdom, and it's so great. He is such a godly man. It is going so good for him. It's going so good for the nation. And the king of the northern kingdom is the equal opposite in evilness. So as great and wonderful as Jehoshaphat is, the king of the north is, in a mirror-like way, evil. So the way that the Bible tells us about who this guy is, King Ahab, it says it like this in 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Think of the most evil, dastardly dude that you can think of in the Old Testament. He was worse than them. Whatever guy you want to pick, he was more evil than them. He was an evil dude. And partially the reason that he was an evil dude is because he married a woman. Her name was Jezebel. You've heard that name. And Jezebel led her husband's away, his heart away from God. And not only that, she had this method of making sure that nobody else would follow God either. He, she would have them killed. And so you can see the northern kingdom was a little different, led by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, you know the name Jezebel. As soon as I said the name, eyes lit up. I heard that name. But you've never met anybody named Jezebel, have you? Why is that? Well, because of her reputation from thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, 
her reputation of godless living still impacts the names that we give our kids today. And so whenever you're going to have your next child, don't name her Jezebel, okay? Now, also, if you're going to have a son, don't name him Jehoshaphat because, yeah, he was a godly man, but he's going to get beat up in school, okay? So don't, don't do that to him. Give him a, a normal name. All right. So what's interesting is what occurs between the, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Now, Jehoshaphat, which is the godly king of the southern kingdom, had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab, the evil king of the north. So Jehoshaphat marries one of his sons to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You might be thinking, why in the world would he do something like that. Why would you marry your son that you'd prayed for for his entire life, that, that you wanted nothing but the best for him? Why would you arrange a marriage between him and the offspring of the most evil man and woman that had ever existed up until that point in time? Now, it's not as crazy as you might think. Because this was a common method of creating peace in the Middle East at the time. The way that you would create peace in the Middle East is by royalty marrying each other, where the son of the king would marry the daughter of another nation's king, and thereby now creating family bonds between those two nations I mean, after all, what king, what, what man is ever going to invade their, their son and daughter-in-law and grandkids? And whatever king, man, is going to ever invade his daughter and son-in-law and their kids? And so the cultural system was to build these alliances through marriage, through putting the... So, so so Jehoshaphat, like you think at first, I mean, did he just like go off the deep end? No, he doesn't go off the deep end. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going rogue. This is just what everybody does. This is just the way the culture works. This is just the way that things operate. And it doesn't seem like a really big deal at all to him or maybe even to you. But now, today, we know the ending and this one moment of naivete, not realizing what he was doing with his son, is going to forever impact his parenting. But what's weird is he doesn't even notice. He doesn't even know. You know, sometimes when we do things as just humans or as Christians, we just do them because that's what everybody else does. I just use, do my thing, you know, I just, I just put my money in that place. I just send my kids to that school. This is what everybody does. I, I, just, I just do this with my kids. I, I, just, I just do this at my job because that's just the way it works. And sometimes Christians, after doing things that just the way everybody does it, they end up later on regretting what they did because 
it wasn't right for them. And as parents, sometimes the decisions that we make with our kids or for our kids sometimes impacts them in a negative way. And later on, we see the impact of that, and later on we regret what occurred because we didn't think through what happened in that moment. And so if that's you, you can identify with Jehoshaphat completely. So Jehoshaphat's son, his name is Jehoram. Don't name your son that, that either. And the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, her name is Athilah, Athilah. And so Jehoram, godly man, marries Athilah, Old Testament. Jehoram, here comes the bride down the aisle, and they get married. And Jehoshaphat assumed that this was going to work out great. He assumed that nothing was going to change, that everything was going to happen just as well as it always did. And the problem is, is that he just placed a little, too little emphasis on the impact of what marriage does to a man and a woman. Here you have Jehoram being a godly son, raised in a godly home, being taught the ways of the Lord, this is the way you live. This is morality. This is, this is how life happens as a follower of God. But then you have a woman who, none of those things, who's taught just the opposite of all of those things. And then the two of them, they get married. What's interesting is the Bible goes silent on this marriage. For the next eight years, don't hear anything about this marriage at all. And at least the implication is, or the assumption is, is that to Jehoshaphat, everything's going great. Everything's working exactly as it should. The, the alliance, by the way, it worked. They, 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 they had peace between the two nations. It worked so good, in fact, that then Jehoshaphat started making similar agreements with other neighboring nations that wanted to take them out too. I don't know why he did that. We'd already been told that God had put a supernatural fear inside of all those nations that they weren't attacking him. His borders were secure, but nonetheless, he started to make these agreements with other neighboring nations. And so finally, Jehoshaphat dies. We don't hear anything about this marriage between Jehoram and the daughter of the two evils of the north. Uh, we hear nothing of that marriage, and Jehoshaphat dies. And ass assuming he dies naively thinking that everything is going well in that marriage and everything is going well in that family, but it wasn't. It was not going well at all. So when a king dies, Jehoshaphat dies, the king of the southern kingdom dies, who becomes king? Jehoram, the son who, who married the evil daughter. So he becomes king and she becomes queen. So we pick it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 5. 
And it says this, Jeroboam was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That's not good. Because who's the king of the northern kingdom Israel? Ahab. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So his wife started to lead him into other ways, and his wife convinced him to do things the way that her mom and dad had done it. She was leading him to do the exact same thing. You want to know one of the things that she led him to do? Look at one verse before that, verse 4. She she picked up right where her mom Jezebel left off, and he, she had him kill all of his brothers. Verse 4 of chapter 21. Now, when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all of his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. He kills all of his brothers because he doesn't want any of his other brothers to usurp his authority. That's the way that it worked in the northern kingdom. You kill off anybody who has the potential of uh, taking over your authority. And so that's exactly what the, the queen or his wife led him to do. Now imagine the whiplash in that living in that country. So here we are in Judah. Wonderful, wonderful king Jehoshaphat leading us in secure borders, leading us in contentment, uh, leading us in social peace. It was a wonderful place to live. And then now, all of a sudden, you have, as the, the writer in Chronicles says here, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he becomes, arguably, Judah's worst king. Now, I don't know how arguably that is because of what God did to him. Look at verse 18 of chapter 21. This gives you a perspective of God's perspective of how uh, Jehoram did in his leading. Verse 18 of chapter 21. So, after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now, it came about in the course of time at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great pain. And the people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings." So Jehoram, the the son that a godly man had prayed for, the the son that Jehoshaphat had such high hopes for, the the son that, that he wanted nothing but the best for, when he dies, nobody cares. There's no funeral. Nobody cares because he was such an evil leader. He was such a bad guy. And the reason for that is because of decisions that his dad had made for him in assigning him a wife that led him in that direction. Now, 
after he dies, after Jehoram, so we have Jehoshaphat, godly king, he dies. Then the next king is his son, Jehoram, terrible king, and he dies. Guess what? Now who's leading the country? The evil queen. It's like a Disney movie, you know. The evil queen. And she wants her son to be the king there. But look at what happens. Now, when Aphiliah, <laughs> not even going to say it again, the mother of Azaziah, this is the evil queen, saw her son dead. Her son had died. And so he obviously couldn't become king anymore. She rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. She assassinated all of her grandkids. Because that's what her mom did. She didn't want anybody else of the family line to take over and to lead instead of her. And so... She kills all of her grand, grandkids off, except for one that's hidden, verse 11. But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Isaiah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and placed him, in his, placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jeroboam, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from the evil queen so that she would not put him to death. And he was hidden from them in the house of God for six years while the evil queen reigned over the land. Jehoshaphat's grandkids are all murdered. Now, whose, whose fault was that? Now, of course, it was her fault. I mean, she owns that. But who sowed the seeds of that in the family? A very godly man, Jehoshaphat, who had a moment of naivete, assuming that life was just going to operate just fine. And yet in that moment, not understanding the way that life really operated, completely demolished the family. And so that's why. We get to these two warnings, the two warnings that I began with, the same two warnings. Godliness of a parent doesn't always guarantee that there's going to be godly discernment in every single decision that's made. There are Old Testament men in the Bible who are godly men that make terrible decisions. And probably you've just found this out like in your, your regular life. Just in life as a Christian, you've probably started to notice that some of the decisions that Christians make are not always the best. Even those people who typically are known for good discernment, every once in a while, they can have a moment of insanity, a moment of a bad decision. I just want you to remember that just because you are living your life for the Lord, you're reading your Bible and you're praying regularly, does not guarantee that every decision you make, just by nature of you being a Christian, does not guarantee that that decision is going to be a discerning decision. 
That's, that's not a math equation that is promised in God's Word. When you become a Christian, you automatically make perfect decisions. You can't assume that. That's not, a, that's not a promise that's made to you. There are other wonderful promises that are made to you, but that's not a promise that's made to you. Now, it would seem, just from, I, I don't know if I'm an, I'm not an outsider, I'm an insider. I have, I have teenagers in the home and, and lots of friends and know lots of Christians in all of the areas and ways that I know people. And it would seem that a lot of Christian families have the exact same blind spot that Jehoshaphat had. And that blind spot is that it's okay to build bonds with people who are not believers. Here's what happens often where a Christian man and a wife, they get married, and because of their friendships or whatever, they build friendships and build bonds with maybe another family or two that are not Christians. They probably have other Christian families as well, but they, they get married, and as a husband and wife, they have close bonds for whatever reason with people who are not Christians. And over time, they begin to build the unity between those two families, and then eventually the Christian family begins to have kids, and the non-Christian family begins to have kids. And so they start to do things together as families. They do Thanksgiving together. They go camping together. They go on vacation together. And they build bonds of unity between these two families. And sure enough, as those kids get to be young adults, they begin to fall in love with each other because, you know, that's what happens. Boys and girls, that's what happens. They begin to fall in love with each other. And, and all of a sudden, the, the, the child of the Christian family who's been praying for that child, that, that wants nothing but the best for the child, that's been raising that child in the way that they would want them to go, they end up marrying somebody who is not a believer because of the alliances that their parents made. And more often than not, the typical trajectory is exactly the trajectory of Jehoram. That's the trajectory. That when a person raised in a godly home, gets married to someone who is not a believer, typically the, the godly person begins to acquiesce towards the non-Christian lifestyle, typically. I'm not saying that's the rule. I'm saying that's typical, that the Christian is led away from the Lord. And I think it really is just that. I think it's just a blind spot. Jeho- Jehoshaphat didn't didn't want something bad to happen to his son. He didn't make a a, a bad decision purposefully, but he was just naive to the way that things really operate. And so he made a decision that he didn't ever even have a chance to regret because he had died before all of these things took place, but he cratered his family. Jehoshaphat cratered his family with that one decision. Not only that, he cratered his entire nation. That nation never really was able to claw back. The southern kingdom of Judah never had it like they had it under Jehoshaphat because of this one decision of the allies with that evil, unbelieving nation and marrying the two sons together. 
Now, I get it. Today, it's not the same way for us. We don't, we don't do arranged marriages. Now, I know as parents, I would love to. <laughs> I really want to. But we, we don't. That's not the way that it works here. And now, it's not moral or immoral that we do or don't. It's just social ways of, of finding marriage. And in our social way, parents don't, don't do that. But you know what Jehoshaphat didn't think about what, what he was naive to as he was arranging this, this marriage? He was naive to truths like this. Now, this is from the New Testament, but this doesn't mean that it wasn't true all the way back in the Old Testament. Truth is always truth, you know. And so this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What do the two have in common? Uh, righteousness and lawlessness. And the assumption is, is yeah, nothing. What, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And the assumption is, is, yeah, nothing. And so this passage is, the context of this passage is not marriage. The context of this passage is not business. It's a different context, but the application of this is pervasive in every aspect of a person's life. This passage is often used, rightly so, when people enter into business agreements, like having a, a partnership in a business or something. It's not wise for a Christian to partner with a non-Christian in a business, bound, being bound together. Why is that? It's not, it's not because the non-Christian is uh, evil or going to tank the company or something like that. It's because there's not a common ground. There's not a common understanding. When it comes to paying taxes at the end of the year, the Christian is going to want to be humble and upright and submissive to the government and pay what's due. The non-Christian is not going to have those same sensitivities. And they might tell their accountant, no, no, no move the books around so we pay less taxes. And so now you can see that there are different purposes of what is supposed to be a partnership. Or when it comes to customers in the business, the, the Christian might say, I want the best for my customers. I want them to come back. I want to provide a good, good, good service for them. It might even cost us a little more to build a customer, but it's worth it for the long term. But the, the partner might not have that perspective, might not have a people-focused perspective. They might say, well, let's just abuse our customers for all they're worth, and then once we lose them, who cares? There's another sucker born every minute. And so that's why you wouldn't want to partner with someone who's not aligned with you. And maybe you've seen that happen in the places that you've worked where there's not an alignment of the, the leadership. And so this passage says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. That's a wonderful application to business. But, but marriage is also another wonderful application. Even close bonds with other families, even close friendships. Now, this is not saying you can't have a friendship who is not a Christian. That's, that's not what this is saying. But it's talking about the bonding, the closeness. Because what, what do you really have in common, really? Now, it's true that you might have camping in common as your two families grow up, or you might have history in common as these two families grow up together, but 
but you're, you're raising your kids in a completely different way than they are. You, you, you're praying for them. You, you, you are disciplining them. You want nothing but the best for, for them spiritually in the long term. You want them to be a believer. You want them to protect themselves in their purity early in their life. You want a lot of things in them, but that's not the same things that the, that the parents are of the other side. The dad's telling their sons when they get to be teenagers, yeah, go do as much as you can. Find as many girls as you can. Um, shop as many as you can. But the Christians aren't going to be telling their own kids that as they're teenagers. And so what partnership do those two things have together? This is what Jehoshaphat didn't quite realize. That as soon as there is an imbalance in that marriage, one's going to pull one away. And Paul talks further about what occurs here in 1 Corinthians that is talking about marriage directly. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. As soon as a person gets married, now they have more things to worry about than only serving the Lord. But what, but what about this? If Jehoram had married a godly woman, a woman, in, in fact, that loved God even more than she loved Jehoram, how much of a divided heart would Jehoram really have had? None. There would be no division of his heart because they all had the same trajectory. But as soon as Jehoram married the daughter of someone that, that didn't have the same perspective, that daughter was able to pull him away because Jehoram had a divided heart. The wife pulled him away. And this is a, a blind spot for a lot of people. And I know that we can't, we can't assign the spouse of our kids. <laughs> I know we'd like to, but we can't arrange a marriage like that. And so what often happens is parents then just say, well, I, just, I hope they pick good. I, I, there's not really much that I can do. There's not really much influence that I can have in that decision. But that's not the case. Parents do have an influence in who their kids marry. And here are three ways that parents who still have kids in the home can influence their kids in who they marry. First, they can pray. They can pray for the salvation of the, their child. They can pray for discernment in making wise decisions for their kids. But you know who you can, you can pray for their future spouse. You can pray for the spouse of your kids, their future one. You can, you can pray for them. And I, I do, I've done this with my kids ever since they were born, just on my own. But I also pray for their spouse with them sometimes when I'm praying with them. And what do I pray for? I pray for their future spouse, that their future spouse would be saved early in their life, and that they would make good decisions that would protect them and their sexual purity and, their, and, and, and protect themselves from doing things that they would regret later on in life. I also pray for the parents of their future spouse, that their parents are already raising them in the, in the right way, because like, I'm going to feel robbed. I spent so much time with my kids, they better marry someone whose parents spent as much time with them as I did on mine. You know? And so I'll be praying for the this, you know, future spouse of my kids as I'm praying with them. <laughs> and I think at the end, they, they open their eyes and they're thinking, uh, Dad, or you have someone in mind for me or what? <laughs> now, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just praying for the future spouse. 
So these are ways that you can, you can impact. You might think that prayer is, isn't going to help anything. Oh, no. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That's what Scripture says. So you can pray for your kid's spouse. You can pray for wisdom or discernment as you're making decisions with your kids because not every decision is just automatically discerning. You need God's wisdom. You need His help. And so when we ask for, for help in prayer, He will help us in these discerning decisions. You can teach them. I mean, how are they going to know? How is your child going to know to pick this one and not that one? How are they going to know what things to look at to weed them out or what things to look at in a person to bring them in? How are they going to know that that's not the right one, but this is a a right fit for me? How are they going to know unless a parent helps them know what things to look for? The only way that they're going to know is by either the way their friends do it or tell them to do it or by the way that it looks like in the movies or on TV. Well, it worked out for them. That marriage worked great in the movies. That's how they found their spouse. That's what they did before marriage. And so I think I probably should do the exact same thing. So unless we teach them, how are they going to know? You have influence. You don't get to decide exactly who they're going to marry. But you can influence them. And the last one is modeling. Modeling a wonderful marriage for your kids. I'm sure maybe you've started to notice this with kids living at home, and if your kids are already out of the home, you know this for sure. The same things that we see here in, in Second Chronicles, we, we can just tell that children tend to copy the, the weaknesses of their parents and not their strengths. And you're like, oh, no, that's not good. But that allows us to model what we teach them. You can't just say it and then not do it. But as you teach them what to look for, and then you show them what, what that looks like, you are helping them know what spouse to select. And so dads, when you go home and your kids are in the home, grandparents, when your grandkids are around, aunts and uncles, when your nieces and nephews are around, you are modeling for them what to look for. And so dads, you're modeling for your son the way that you want him to treat his wife when he gets married. And dads... You, the way that, that you treat your wife is the way that you are teaching your daughter how she should be treated by her husband. I know. And, and moms do the exact same thing. As you're a mom, you're teaching your daughters exactly how to treat her husband. And it's possible that as you're thinking through that, you're thinking, oh man, I've messed up so many times. I have so many regrets in what I've done in my past because I haven't necessarily modeled the way that I would want it to be modeled. Okay, well, fine. Tomorrow is always another day. You're going you're gonna to see your, your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews tomorrow too. Not just yesterday, but also tomorrow. You, you can change what you are modeling for them. So godliness doesn't always guarantee discernment on the parent's part. You have to pray for it and and ask for wisdom and what to do. But secondly, godliness in in a parent doesn't always guarantee a godly lifestyle on the child's part. That's not the math. That's not a promise in Scripture. The promise in Scripture is not that you're a Christian and so that they're a Christian. You live a godly life, and so the math equation is that then they are going to live a godly life because you raised them up in this. That's not the way that it works. 
The reason that that's not the way that it works is because every person must put their personal faith and trust in the Lord. There's no one born into God's family, only adopted into God's family. And so if there's a child that you're raising in your home or you did raise in your home, and, and for the while that they were in your home, you were almost like the physical Holy Spirit, <laughs> you know, making them feel guilty when they did something wrong and disciplining them when they did something wrong. But once they move out of the house, unless the Holy Spirit is living with inside of them, they're going to go live a lifestyle that is their own because they weren't saved in the first place. So just because that there's a godly parent does not mean that the kids are automatically saved, one, or that they're going to live a lifestyle that you train them to. That's not the, that's not the math. And so we can, as parents, we pray for our kids and their salvation often, early. Talk to them about their need for a Savior as often as humanly possible around the dinner table, early and often. If your kids are out of the house, 20, 30, 40-something, and and they're living a life like so not the way that you raised them, living with their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, not married. You, you don't need to give them a guilt lecture because that's not going to change their life. You pray for their salvation because God can clean up their life. You, you're not going to clean up their life. They're adults. They're already gone. But God can. I mean, he cleaned up yours, right? Cleaned, up, cleaned me up. And he can even clean up adult children who are living far from the Lord. He can clean them up too. But that's his role. That's the Holy Spirit's role. You, you can't do that, but the Lord can. Well, we have to land this plane today. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and maybe you grew up in a Christian home, maybe uh, you um, realize now that you never put your faith in him, and maybe even your lifestyle is reflective of the fact that you were never saved in the first place, Today, you can put your faith in Jesus. Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. He rose from the grave, proving that he can remove your sin. And all it takes is your faith, your trust, your belief in that Jesus. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your faith in Christ this morning. Would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes today? All of you, whether you know you're going to heaven or not, just creates a little separation between the person next to you just for a minute. It allows, um, maybe not you, but other people to consider their eternal um, mortality for just a minute. The Bible promises eternal life instead of eternal death and faith in Christ. Maybe you've, maybe you've never um, considered these things, but today you can put your faith in Jesus. Allow his death to apply in your life. And if you know that you need a Savior, you can talk to God about it in the comfort of your own heart. He can read your mind. But this is what you could say just in the quietness of your heart. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things I shouldn't have done, and I realize that that separates me from you forever in eternity in hell. And and I need a Savior, and I believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe that He is God. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, and when He died, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that three days later, Jesus rose from the grave proving that He is God, and that He can remove my sin, and that He can be my Savior, and that He can take my soul to heaven when I die. Well, God, we thank You for these things. We praise You for them. We worship You because of them. In Jesus' name, amen.